ever been in an airport and been at the gate to go on a flight somewhere? If you've ever been in an airport, you've been in a gate uh, to go on a flight somewhere, have you ever taken your face out of your phone for two seconds and looked around you? And what you'll notice if you do that is you can tell the difference between who has a ticket for that flight and who is on standby. You ever notice that difference? People who have a ticket for the flight, they're sitting back, they're chilling, they got their face in the phone, they're watching something, they're looking at news, they're reading the newspaper. Somebody's like, what's a newspaper? It's pre-internet. Uh, they're eating a sandwich, they're doing something like that. They are just relaxed and they're good to go. But people on standby are a little bit different, aren't they? I mean, they're like pacing around, they're pestering the person at the gate, you know, the gate agent there. Uh, they're, they're, they're just like, they're really nervous, they're really anxious, they're fretting and fretting and fretting. Why? Because they do not have a guaranteed spot on the plane. They have no certainty. They have no assurance. Why? They do not have a ticket. Christian, I do not want us to be like people on standby of a plane. (laughs) If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, listen to me, stop worrying about your salvation. Stop fretting over it. Does God love me? Does God like me? Will God accept me? Am I going to be in heaven with him? If you are in Christ, and my question for for you today is, are you in Christ? Then stop worrying. Stop fretting. You have this thing called assurance. And that's really, really good news. Well, today we're continuing our study through the book of Romans, and we're starting a brand new chapter. We're starting in chapter 8 Uh, And chapter 8 is a massive transition within the book. If you've been with us over the first uh, seven chapters for about 21 weeks now, uh, Paul's been hammering them and us, basically saying that we cannot be saved by the law. We cannot be saved by our good works. We can't be saved by our religion. We can't be saved by being irreligious. We can only be saved by the one who came, lived a perfect life on our behalf, died a death on the cross on our behalf, rose three days later, 40 days later, ascended to heaven, and his name is... And if he saves us, then we can be assured we are saved. Now, the question is, how do we live that out? Well, if you were with us last week, we, we saw in chapter 7 that Christians still struggle with sin. We still have times where we dip back into sin, and we do a lot of dumb sometimes. So the question now is, is there any hope for us? And the answer is yes. And the hope is found in chapter 8. And we're going to be introduced to the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see what a Spirit-empowered life looks like. And so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and go, through, go to Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Romans 8, if you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need a Bible. We lead, teach, and preach from the Bible, and so we have those in English and Spanish for you as free gifts. There's some at the table and some at center point. Just walk by, grab it. It is yours. And if you've got a smartphone, which I'm sure you do, uh, you can download version and um, click Grace Point Church on the events, and all the notes will pop up for today. But we'll be in Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to see about the Holy Spirit. We're going to really slow down through chapter 8. We're going to take about eight weeks to go through one chapter, which is a long time, um, because I believe this to be a life-changing chapter. I believe so much so that God is going to use Romans chapter 8 to change our lives individually and holistically as a church. Do you believe that as well? Let me show you why, because I'm going to argue that this is the greatest chapter in the book of the Bible. When you go to Romans 8, look at the first verse of Romans uh, chapter 8. Verse 1, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now look at the last sentence of Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Paul says, for I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, 
nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, which is everything, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this chapter begins with, there's no condemnation. This chapter ends with, there's no separation. Like, this is the greatest chapter ever. This is true. Do you believe it to be true? We believe it to be true, but my question for us today is this. Do you believe this to be true for you? Because sometimes we read these things like, yeah, yeah, that's true, but no, is it true for you? Do you think about this? Do you meditate upon this? Do you live this way? Does it affect your relationship to yourself, your relationship to others, and your relationship with God? See, if you are in Christ, this is true of you. Believe it. Like, do not leave here today without believing this. Some of us think, well, no, 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 this is true for those perfect Christians. Listen to me. There's no such thing as perfect Christians. Some of you are like, no, 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 this is true for those disciples, those super spiritual forces, elite people that, no, there's none of them as well. This is for you. Believe it. This is everything that Paul's been laboring on for seven chapters. Believe it. So this is what's been told of the Old Testament. So hundreds and hundreds of years before, this has been promised to us. If you look all the way back, you don't have to go there. I'll show you on the screen. Ezekiel, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, said this in, in chapter 11. He says, God was speaking, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone, that, that, that heart of sin nature, from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statue and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. The Spirit is going to empower us to be able to do what God commands of us, to live out the life of Christ. Now we just need to believe it. So let's go through it. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Are you there? Yes. You guys ready to do some work this morning? All right. It says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Greatest verse of the Bible. I know John 3.16 gets a lot of play, and it's a really good one too. But this right here, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Greatest verse of the Bible. This is a verse that we should memorize and think about and talk about and, and, and tell other people about. Now, who's writing this? You guys remember who's the author of this book? Paul. What do we know about Paul's past? Good guy, bad guy in his past. Yeah, this dude terrorized Christians. This dude had Christians put in prison. This dude had Christians stoned and killed. Like this was a bad guy. And yet he says there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So if there's no condemnation for Paul, if he can say this about himself, then can't we say it about ourselves as well? How many Christians have you stoned lately? Just don't answer that. Like, <laughs> Some of you are like, one, ten, three. No, no, no. There's, there's no condemnation. And the time period matters as well. When is there no condemnation? What does the text say? Because if not, if we're not careful, we'll think, you know, later on when I stand before God and, later, and like when I die, there's no condemnation. But what does the text say? What's the word again? What, what, what does now mean? Do you hear that? You are not condemned right now by God. You are not, now, you won't be condemned when you die as well, and when you meet him face to face, you will not be condemned, but you are outside of the reach of God's condemnation. Isn't that great news? See, some of us think, well, like, no, 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 when I'm bad, I, I move back under, like, like God's got a big rock above, and he's just ready to drop a rock on me at any time. I move back under condemnation when I'm bad, but when I'm good, I move out from under it. No, 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 no. You're not condemned right now if you're not in Christ Jesus. Even the word condemned, when you look at it in the original Greek, means damned. 
You are not damned by God at all. Some of you would say, well, Ty, I just, I, I hear what you're saying, but you just don't know me. You don't know how bad I am, and you just, you don't know how much I struggle in my walk with Jesus, and you just don't understand. Like, I'm just trying to hang on to God, but I feel like my grip is slipping. Can, can I give you some really good advice? If you feel like your grip on God is slipping, and that may be some of you right now, are you ready? I'm going to give you the greatest advice. This will be all you need for right now. You can pray and go home after this, okay? You ready? Don't go home yet, but you ready? Let go. If you think your grip is what's holding you with Jesus, then just let go. Why? Your salvation is not based on the strength of your grip. Your salvation is based on the strength of God's grip. Jesus says this. I love this part. Jesus, uh, Jesus is a, uh, the Trinity is a double fister. It says this in John chapter 10. It says this in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, never perish. Now this is Jesus talking. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Whose hands? Jesus. Let me keep going. My father, who's, ta- who's he talking about now? Okay, so we have Jesus, the son, and now we have the father. The father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. So, so God has got two grips on you. Isn't that great? You will never slip. You will never perish. For some of you, this is just like, Ty, I just, this is so hard for me to believe. Per- perhaps. Let's, um, perhaps. I, I, I know you. I know you. I know a lot of you. Perhaps some of you, this is really hard for you to believe because of the tradition in which you come from. For some of you, you come from a Catholic tradition. Let me, if you come from a Catholic tradition, you grew up in Catholic church, give me a little nod so I know, so I know, I know you. Yep, yep. <laughs> Lots of you, yes. Lots of you. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that's bad. Please hear me. I'm, I'm not, this is not my opportunity to, to beat up the Roman Catholic church or anything like that. I grew up with no religion whatsoever. And Catholicism, uh, it really is, it, it intrigues me. I mean, I would, there's part of me that's like, I'd like to be Catholic except for the Bible. Won't let me. But... Um, <laughs> Stop. But there was this fight. There was this, um, there's this thing called the Protestant Reformation. Have you guys ever heard of the Protestant Reformation a little over 500 years ago? Uh, there, there was a group of people and they were, you know, re-examining the scriptures and they were like, oh, wait a minute, something's not right. And so there was the Protestant Reformation. That's where Protestant churches came from, the Roman Catholic Church, about 500 years ago. And one of the things that they hammered out, uh, pun intended, during the Protestant Reformation was that true believers and followers of Jesus Christ can have full assurance that God saves them from beginning to end. And when God saves a person, he saves them all the way through. Like you're saved and completely saved, that's it. Uh, the, the reformers wanted Christians to rest rather than be restless when it came to their eternal state. And so this idea uh, of this assurance of Christ got tossed around during the Protestant Reformation, and there was an absolute outrage amongst the Roman Catholic tradition there, amongst the Roman Catholic theologians there. And so there's a guy, he was the pope at the time, his name was Pope Clement VIII. He had a theological advisor, his name was Robert Ballerman. Uh, Roger Ballerman, uh, old Roger, Robert, he was the theological advisor to this pope, and he had a whole lot to say about it. And at one time during the 16th century, he said this, this is what the, the, the Robert, the advisor to the cardinal said, or the, the pope said. He says, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. Now, heresy means a false teaching. And so at that time period, they're saying the worst thing about these Protestants is that they think that they can have assurance. Even during the Council of Trent, we're really nerding it out today. Hang on. Um, it's like they were still uh, sussing this out, and they said this, 
No one can know with certainty of faith, which cannot be subject to error, that he has obtained the grace of God. And this teaching was that, that a Christian could not have assurance. They always had to be skeptical. They always had to be worried. They always had to worry about like, oh, am I not good enough? Well, then I'm going to go to the eternal holding tank called purgatory, work it off in a million years, and maybe I'll go to heaven and all that. And so they were really having people question their salvation. And so the Protestant reformers, they disagreed with Robert and, and agreed with another Robert, and they said, can we have assurance? And the Protestant reformer said, yes, we can, as Robert Bob the Builder said. You, it's cheesy, I know. I know, but I got to laugh. Um, you and I, we can have full assurance of our salvation. Just because your tradition in the past had you kind of nervous and uncertain and trying to work, work more for it. Listen, listen. Our Bible tells us if you're in Christ, you will never be under the condemnation of God again. Uh, some people ask the question, is there anything that God cannot do? And the answer is yes, there's lots of things that God cannot do. And one thing that God cannot do is condemn Christians. Did you hear that? He cannot condemn Christians. Why? Because he promises right here that he will not, and God cannot go back on his word. Do you believe that? Believe it to be true. Now, how is this possible? Because charges against you no longer stick to you. Do you understand that? Your sins no longer stick to you in the eyes of God. Why? Because you have the record of Christ. When you trusted Jesus, you have been what the word is justified. Justified, never sinned, and justified, always obeyed the record of Jesus. You now have that record. Paul talks about that earlier in chapter 5, verse 16. He talks about the positive side of condemnation, of no condemnation. He says, And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So because of our sin, we are condemned. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. You are declared legally right before God. And because of that, God finds no fault in you. Some of you don't like that. Like, whoa, but I still sin. No, no. He, he sees the record of Christ on your behalf. He finds no fault in you. You don't go back and forth under his condemnation any longer. You are no longer under his condemnation because of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's been laboring on for seven chapters now. Look, look back at Romans 8.1. I want to show you one more time. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This does not mean that God no longer condemns. What's, what's the uh, only way you cannot be condemned? It's the last phrase there. What is it? You have to be in Christ Jesus. So listen, if you are not in Christ Jesus, you are still under God's condemnation. Now, you, he's like, oh, I don't like that. And like, it's not what I hear out in the world. In the world around me, I hear that like, you know, that, that, that God won't judge me and nobody can judge me. And I'm kind of, you know, I'm better than somebody else. My good outweighs my bad. That's a, that's a great lie from Satan himself. Satan literally wants to lie to Christians and, and, and tell you all the time that you're still condemned. And Satan wants to lie to the world and says, no, no, you're not condemned. Listen, if you're not in Christ, the Bible tells us that you're an object of his wrath, meaning you have a bullseye on you in this life. And if you do not trust Christ, if you do not move that bullseye off of you, then God will you will be an object of his wrath for all of eternity. That's what we call hell. You're like, well, Ty, this, this is painful. But there's good news. 
When Jesus went to the cross, he took the bullseye for you. He became an object of wrath for you. And so if you have not trusted Christ, trust Christ today. And then this verse will be true of you as well. There's no condemnation for you today. Isn't that good news? Let me, let me keep going. Verse 2. It's great news. There's a way out. Verse 2. He says, For the law of the Spirit, or the principle of the Spirit of life, has set you free. Christian, you're free. You're liberated. Free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You're no longer condemned. You're no longer under the law of sin and death. You have been liberated. You have freedom. Paul's been talking about how our failure to live up to the law of God brings us death, that we will die. But now we're freed from it. The old principle showed us our sin and showed us our sinfulness, and I would actually say stirred up sin in us and then brought us condemnation. But this new principle, this new spirit of the law, brings us salvation. It brings us liberation. There's no more condemnation for us. Death has been replaced with life because of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit comes to free us from the bondage of sin within our hearts. If you look at verse 2, it's basically, uh, you can see that we've been delivered from the legal condemnation of sin. And when you look at verse 2 and forward, we see that we're being delivered from the actual power of sin. We are now, Christian, empowered to not sin. I don't think we'll be sinless, but we have the power to not sin. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. Who did it? It's very important. Who did it? God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do by sending his own son. Who's his son? Okay, look at you go. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Now, is Paul disrespecting the law right here? Not, not at all. But the law cannot save us. The law does not have the power to save us. The law has been weakened. It's not the law's fault. Whose fault is it that has weakened the law? It is ours. Why? Because we can't obey the law completely and fully. We are incapable of that. We are of the flesh, and so we sin. So we can't save ourselves. And so the law is powerless to save us, not because the law lacks power, is that we cannot obey it fully and completely. Does that make sense? But that's the point in the text why, why God sent his son, Jesus. That's what we call the gospel. That's, that's what we mean when we say the gospel is good news, that Jesus came, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus resurrected, that Jesus ascended, that Jesus did all this on our behalf. That's why it's called good news. Uh, some of you are like, well, how, do I, um, how would you summarize the gospel? Here's how I would summarize the gospel. We cannot, Jesus can. That's it. We, that's what this text, we cannot, Jesus can. Look back at this verse. It has something very um, dicey. He says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Watch this next line. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Paul's very careful in the original Greek how he words this out. Notice he's saying, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus is like us. If you look in the book of Hebrews, you can see that he's like us in all respects, except one way. There's one way that Jesus is not like us. And what is that way? No sin. He has no sin. That's, that's important. We'll talk about it another time. The virgin birth is very important. That's why he has no, that, not that sin nature. But he took on flesh. What we need to understand is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, Father, Jesus, and Holy Spirit, have always existed in spirit form. Okay? The Father, Spirit. The Son, Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Spirit. 
Yet, when Jesus comes to earth, what does he do? He takes on a body. That's the virgin birth. That's him uh, taking on flesh. He, he's fully God and fully man as well. He was born without sin. He was sinless. That's the important part about Jesus. He has no sin. Now, some of us, we may push against that, like, well, that doesn't sound right. How can you be a human and not have sin? Like, surely Jesus sinned somewhere, or maybe Jesus wasn't really human. Maybe Jesus was just wearing flesh as like a mask. He just stayed God the whole time. Well, there's this old school heresy called uh, docetism, and in this uh, old school heresy, uh, they would say that Jesus has always been God, and we would all agree with that, right? But they're also saying that he just basically took on flesh like he wore a mask, he was somewhat faking it. Uh, let me put this in current terms to understand. You ever seen uh, or heard of the story of, about Superman? You ever watch a movie? Yes. Do you, you know this? Okay. Uh, do you know anything about Superman? Uh, you, you look at Superman, but he was also, do you ever notice the similarities between Superman and Clark Kent? It's like <laughs> his disguise was wearing a pair of glasses, like, oh, that's not Superman. That's totally... <laughs> and, like, Superman's from another planet. He must be like, humans are so dumb. If I put a pair of glasses on, they'll never know it's me. And so when you watch, especially the old school, anyone ever seen the old school movies? They're amazing. Like, I'm talking about, was it, like, 70s and 80s? They're amazing. If you've not seen them, go watch them. Well, you watch them, and Clark Kent, he works for, like, the newspaper or whatever. He gets in all these, these troubles happen. Like, oh, no, there's going to be a car that's going to hit him. Oh, no, there's going to be a bullet that's going to hit him. Oh, no, this building is going to collapse on him. And as the viewer, you're like, oh, my gosh, Clark Kent is going to die. But then you're like, wait a minute. That's not really Clark Kent. That's Superman in a pair of glasses working for the newspaper. And so uh, we, we understand that moment. He's not human. He's not Clark Kent. And so the question is, was Jesus like that? Jesus came to earth and he had to pretend like, oh, guys, I'm hungry when he really wasn't. Or Jesus, uh, you know, was upset. He's like, oh, I'm really upset. And like, but he wasn't. And then Jesus goes across and takes a beating and the nails and all that. And he's like, ooh, ooh, ow, ow. But he really wasn't. <laughs> was he like Clark Kent? And the answer is no. Philippians 2 says that he, he was fully God, but kind of set that power, that attribute aside to take on being fully human as well. And so everything that Jesus went through, the temptation without sinning, marvel. He was fully human. When Jesus goes and takes the pain of a cross, he actually took it, that agonizing, they say it's the worst death ever. He took that completely as fully human. He felt and endured all of that pain. I mean, just marvel at Jesus being fully man as well. He came to the cross and died for us. That's penal substitutionary atonement. Like he died so we can be one with God. That's what he's saying right here in this text, that he died for sin. Like he died in our place. He was our fall God. The uh, reformers of old call it the great exchange, where Jesus on the cross took your sin, your past sin, your present sin, your future sin, all of your sin, all of my sin, all for those who are in Christ's name, he takes their sin and he exchanges it for his perfect record. Now we received his record. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him, that would be Jesus, to be sin, like he became our sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that great? Some of, you, some of us, when we, we, we get this far into the text, we're like, man, I love this. And some of us so far in this study are like, you know what? Here's what I'm getting. I'm getting from this study that I'm no longer bound by the law. I'm going to be a person led by the Spirit. 
And so God's law and God's word, it really isn't for me anymore because I'm free and I'm in the spirit. Hang on just a second. Why did he send Jesus? Look at verse 4. If you go back to verse 3 and read that last part, uh, sending his son for all that he did, and verse 4 says, in order. Why did he send his son? In order that the righteous requirement, the perfection of the law, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, typically in the Bible, when you read uh, when, to walk, it means the way of life, that you walk empowered and enabled by the Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit within us empowers us to obey the law. We are called and empowered by the Holy Spirit now as Christians to obey the law. We'll never do it perfectly, but we are to obey the law. It is to shape and form us more into Christ. John Stott said this, great British uh, pastor and theologian. Don't miss what he says. We are set free from the law as a way of acceptance, but obliged to keep it as a way of holiness. It is a ground of justification that the law no longer binds us, but as a standard of conduct, the law is still binding, and we seek to fulfill it as we walk according to the Spirit. The thing that Jesus lived for, uh, the purpose of his entire life is to make a people set apart and holy for him. Jesus just didn't save us so we can just go live our lives any way we want. No, he saved us to form us more and more like him. The reason why he came, the reason why he uh, fulfilled the law perfectly, the reason why he died, the reason why he resurrected and descended is to come and make a brand new people, the church, spotless, perfected for him. And so whenever we sin, we have to understand that we're kind of frustrating even the reason why he came to save us, which I think that's a bit of a motivator to like, hey, I want to walk in the ways of Christ. That's the reason why he came for me. He wants to make me a new human being. And the law couldn't do that in and of itself. Jesus had to come and fulfill the law and now give us the spirit. Now we can walk by the spirit and obey the law, not perfectly, but growing in holiness. Make sense? Someone wrote this. I don't know who and so I'll give this credit to Tim Frazier. <laughs> Just like Tim Frazier always says, and this, he's, he's a poetic man as well, if you know him. To run and work the law commands, yet gives me neither feet or hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Like now we have been set free. Now we've been empowered, not to be entangled in sin, but to live in holiness and to live out the law of God's. And so, like, when we hear this live out the law of God, we're like, oh, gosh, which one? There's so many. Jesus did us a solid. What's the greatest of laws? Matthew 22, 37. He said, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. So what's the greatest commandment? Love God. The Spirit is giving you new desires and new heart to love God, to want God, to desire God. Isn't that great? And there's more. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of these two commandments, depend on all the law and the prophets. What's the second commandment? God is empowering us now as Christians to love him and love others. Now, that's our text. That's the truth. That truth can set you free. This truth can change your life. This truth can change your relationships your marriage, your parenting, your friendships. This truth can change everything if you'll believe it. So will you believe it? And when I say believe it, will you believe it right now? 
And will you believe it when you walk out of here? And will you believe it tonight? And will you believe it when you wake up? And will you believe it tomorrow when you go to school or work or at home, wherever you go or whatever you do? Will you believe it then? Because that's how this truth will really set you free is you must believe it. There's an interaction that Jesus has with the Father in the book of Mark. And the Father, he has a, a demonic son and he's just at his wit's end, and it's just like it's so troubling him. And the father goes to Jesus, and he pleads with him. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And if you're a parent, you understand that. You're like, if your kid's going through hard times, I can't imagine demonic possession, but like, he's like pleading with Jesus, if you can do anything. And Jesus responds in Mark 9, 23, says this. If you can? I just love that thought. Jesus says, if you, like, don't you know me? Like, haven't you heard about If you can? All things are possible for one who, what's the word? Now, what happens next, in my opinion, is the greatest prayer of the Bible. It is the greatest prayer of the Bible, and it is a prayer that I, I would argue that we should pray often and, and always. This is what the Father says. Immediately, verse 24, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe! Help my unbelief. We're a mixed bag sometimes. We believe, and yet time we have unbelief. Let's pause right here. i got a few minutes left. Let's pause right here. Let's, let's just, in a spirit of prayer. So if you wouldn't mind, close your eyes. But don't be lulled into thinking I'm finished preaching. i got more to say. <laughs> just quiet ourselves for just a second. Just in your mind and your heart. Let's, pr- let's pray that prayer of that Father. I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Just right where you sit, just take a moment. Lord, you are honest, you are trustworthy, and you are true. And you have told us, you have promised us, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We believe. Help us in our unbelief. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Spirit, make that true of us. We pray in Christ's name. Why? For some of you, this is not a problem, but I'd say for most of us, why is it so hard for us to believe this to be true? Why is it so hard? I got three suggestions. Suggestion number one, why is it so hard for us to really believe this truth that we are no longer condemned? Three suggestions. Number one, you ready? Satan. Yeah, he's real. Some of you are like, oh, I don't like this. This feels archaic and medieval. No, 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 there's a real enemy. His name is Satan. Lucifer, the devil, however you want to describe him, we see throughout the Bible. And he is what's known as, as Jesus has called him, the father of lies, meaning the originator. He's like really good at lying. And he's also known as the great accuser. And what he wants to do more than anything, Christian, listen to me, is he wants to accuse you that you are still condemned. He wants to get you busy and get you trying to work your tail off, trying to be okay with God. He does not want you to rest in the certainty and assurance of salvation that Christ has promised you. He wants to drag you down. Here's why. He knows that he's condemned. And he wants to bring you with him. It's true. Uh, Some of you are going to hate this. Uh, Do you you have any, like, uh, pre-Jesus friends? 
Remember some of your pre-Jesus friends, like your drinking buddies or your smoking buddies, wherever you were at with that, or like the people you'd run around with, or like your high school friends that you got in a lot of trouble with, and then they see you again, and you're not, you're not like into that anymore, you're, not, you're a Christian now and all that, and they're like, come on, man, let's go do this one more time, let's tie one on, let's do it. You, you ever been around a situation like that? Am I the only one that faces a situation like that? <laughs> well, what do they want to do? They don't like your change. They want to bring you back down to where they are. The same thing is with the accuser. He's condemned. He knows it. He knows who wins the war. And so he wants to bring you down with him. Hey, next time you feel the condemnation of the enemy, remind him like, nah, that's not me. That's you, book. That's, that's not on me. And when I say Satan, let me be very careful theologically. When I say Satan, I, there's one Satan and lots of demons. Uh, when people say, I mean, I feel like Satan's tempting me today, or we got the t-shirt that says, not today, Satan. Um, I think this is, no, this is no slight to us in here. I think Satan's got bigger fish to fry. Like he's, uh, why? Because uh, I think we get demonic attack for sure. But here's what you need to know about Satan and demons. This is going to really, really help you. Satan and demons, uh, they are not um, omnipotent. Amen. They're not all-powerful. They're not omniscient. They're not all-knowing. They're not omnipresent. They're not all, all around. Do you understand that? They can be in one place at one time. This is, this is really, really good news for us, uh, that, that we know that, that, that you know, he's not. Uh, but here's what Satan and his, his demons can do. They can't, they can't read your mind, Christian, but they can read you. And when you make a mistake in what you do, and you sit around and you beat yourself up and you murmur, oh, I'm such a failure, huh? Man, I failed. Here's what he does. Oh, yeah, you think you, you, think you made a mistake? No, no, no. That's who you are. You are a mistake. You are a failure. He wants to take what you've done and turn it into your identity now. Let's say you lied. You told a little white lie or a big lie. You're like, oh, man, I shouldn't do that. I feel bad about it. I'm going to repent. He's like, no, 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 no. That wasn't a one and done. That's not, uh uh-uh. You're a liar. You're not trustworthy. No one can trust you. God doesn't even trust you. Why? Because you're a liar. And what he wants to do, he wants to break you, right? You see, what the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit convicts Christians. The Holy Spirit convicts you of like, hey, don't lie. Hey, don't sin like that. And, and what he wants to do, the Holy Spirit, he wants to convict you or he confess and repent of sin and turn back to Jesus. And Jesus wants to make you more like him. And so you know the difference between the Holy Spirit conviction and Satan's accusations because uh, the Holy Spirit's conviction makes you more like Jesus. Satan's accusations tears you down and makes you less like Jesus. And we, we've, we've got to be wise. We've got to understand that. Sometimes we sit and say, oh, I'm just a sinner. And there's some truth to that. But theologically, when, when the enemy comes and you say, hey, you're just a sinner. Like, no, 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 no. Theologically speaking, and you can push your glasses up like that if you want to, get all nerd out on Satan. But theologically speaking, I'm a saint who sins sometimes because of what Christ has done to me. And the reality of this is, Christ is not finished with me. He's finished with you, and you will be finished one of these days, but he's not finished with me. Isn't that really good news? You have an enemy. He wants you to make sure you you think that you're condemned. Don't listen to him. Number two, my second thought. Hmm. The first one is accusations from the spiritual realm, Satan. The second one is we live in a very condemning time. A culture of condemnation nowadays. Everyone is condemning everyone. 
I know this. I am a public speaker. I am a guy who says things out loud in front of people, and then it's recorded, and all those types of things. And I know that I am one word, one phrase, one sentence, or something from being canceled. And that's what you call a culture of condemnation. It's lots of canceling out there. And we hear uh, the world tell us, like, no, 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 it's a very accepting world. It's a very uh, tolerant world. It's a very affirming world. That all is a sham. It is a sham. It is riddled with contradictions. Riddled with contradictions. It is not true. It is a culture of condemnation. Listen to the world around you. There's no grace, like real grace. There's no forgiveness. There's no second chances. It's it's just all, I want your job. I want your reputation. I want your money. I want you to be finished. I want you to experience hell on earth because you made one mistake. That's the culture we live in. The same culture that Jesus lived in. You know, they had, they had a little shout, a little, little mantra back then. You remember that mantra back then in Jesus' time? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify. Remember, remember that? And so Christians, unfortunately, we, we, we bring this to one another if we're not careful. We just, we just condemn one another. I heard one preacher say it like this. He used this illustration. It was a great illustration. It's like we live with a bunch of archaeologists around us. You know what an archaeologist does, right? They dig up old things, and then they show them off to everyone around you. And sometimes we're in relationship with people that love to be your archaeologists. They just love to dig up your old stuff. Uh, You ever been in this scenario where you have a significant other, and you're like, hey, I'm going to take my significant other home for the holidays. And then you sit at the the kitchen table or the dining room table with, with with your significant other and all your family, and all of a sudden they take pot shots at you and dig up all your past in front of them. Like, well, when he was a kid, this is what he did. I've got pictures. Here's his little doo-doo, you know, whatever it is. Well, when he was a teenager, when she was a teenager, let me tell you how wild they were. And, like, and they go on and on and on and on about it. Like, how does that make you feel? Like, you're looking for the nearest bridge. You're like, I just got to get out of this situation. <laughs> you ever been in a marriage like that as well? Because sometimes that happens in marriage. Perhaps a spouse will not let you forget what you've done years ago. They just can't get over it. Listen, I love you. I'm, I'm, I'll, if you. If you were to call me your pastor, or one of us here your pastor, we'd be proud and humble. And so as your pastor, I love you. If this is your marriage, and there's just this bitterness, and there's this uh, resentment, and there's these grudges, you're going to have a real tough go at your marriage. It's, 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 uh, it's going to be hard. And if that's you, you need help. There's work you need to do and work they need to do. Now, of course, when you sin against your spouse, the offender should ask for forgiveness. I'm sorry. I did this. Please forgive me. And the offendee, the one who's offended, can, can receive forgiveness and, or, or receive the, um, I guess, the uh, confession, and then they can extend forgiveness and grace to you. You know how that works, right? You ever been in a relationship? But if your marriage doesn't do that, it'll be a train wreck. It will. If you hold on to things season after season and year after year, it's, it's going to be a train wreck. Listen, listen. Can I be, let's just be real practical. There has to be a statute of limitation in your marriage. The, the hurt and the anger has to have an expiration date because if the hurt and the anger doesn't have an expiration date, your marriage eventually will, unfortunately. Why? My Bible tells me that love keeps no record of wrongdoing. 
And um, it's not one of those things where you forgive and forget. It's one of those things where you forgive and move on. And as Pastor Tim has said so eloquently and wisely over years, sometimes it's forgive and choose to not remember. Tim and I were talking about this the other day. He said every marriage will go through two, three, or four big moments to where you're going to need grace and forgiveness. Can you, if you've been married for a while, can you feel, you know that? Two or three big moments. And I'm not talking about you didn't put the toilet seat down. I'm not, I'm not talking about you didn't put the toilet paper roll on right. And for the love of God, we all know the right way is over, not under. If you're under <laughs> barbarians, what are you doing? Gosh, over. <sighs> no, no, some big moments. It's going to need grace, and it's going to need forgiveness. It's going to need it. Listen, I've been married for a long time, and I used to be really impressed by people having really big weddings and like spending tens of thousands. Of, I'd be like, man, that was a big wedding. That, was amazing. that wedding day was amazing. I'm not impressed by that anymore. You know what I'm impressed by? People have been married for 30 years, and 40 years, and 50 years, and 60 years. You know why? Because marriage, you slug it out sometimes. I don't mean that physically. It's just, it's just tough. It's tough. It takes so much grace and forgiveness. Why? Because no one can hurt you like your spouse. And no one can heal you like your spouse. You have that kind of power within that relationship. If relationships are what hurts you, relationships are what heal you. And so being each other's archaeologist is not helping. Side note, apart from marriage, you need to ask yourself if you're a condemning person, if you just have a condemning spirit about you. And some of you may say, well, I don't know if I do or not. Here's what you got to do today. you got to do this today or this week. Go to someone close to you that you really respect and love and ask them, hey, do I have a condemning spirit about me? And say nothing. And if they say yes, don't fight, don't combat, don't do it. Just listen. I'm like, just listen. This is good for you. Go to someone who you love and you can trust. Third and finally, let me give you the last one. You condemn you. We're the worst at condemning ourselves. We do a lot of self-talk, a lot of self-listening. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have now originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Your self-talk is talking to you. What are you saying to yourself? What are you listening to? Do you, do you keep just, just running yourself to the mud? I'm terrible. I'm the worst. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm, a, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm no good. I, I got to give up. I can't keep going. Jesus doesn't love me. God doesn't want me. The idea of not being condemned, no way, because I condemn myself, and surely God is like me, and he condemns me as well. Is that what you hear about over and over and over? You ever pause long enough, Christian, and ask yourself what you say to yourself? Is it true of Jesus? Because if it's not true of Jesus, then it's not true of you. Because why? You're in Christ. In the moment, you may be making mistakes. In the moment, you may have done some dumb. In the moment, but that's not positionally and historically, like futuristically true of you. If it's not true of Jesus, then why would you tell yourself that of you? It's no longer true of you. Why? Because you are in Christ. You are loved by God. And if you're in Christ, you're no longer condemned. There's this story in John 8. There's this woman caught in the act of adultery. And I think when the text says she was caught in the act of adultery, like in the act is what I think happened. Do I need to explain it any further? <laughs> and so it says that the religious people, they draw her out in the middle of the street. And my assumption is she's still naked there and she's got a bunch of dudes around her. And there may be a little lust there. We don't know. The text doesn't say, but I, 
and you just kind of see this situation played out in the mind. And Jesus is right there as well. And they know the law of Moses. They know that they should, they should pick up a rock. They should pick up a rock that doesn't have googly eyeballs on it. Someone did for me. They should pick up a rock. <laughs> and they should, by the law of Moses, throw the rock. And keep throwing the rocks until she dies. But Jesus is over there, and he's doodling in the ground. What he's saying, what he's writing, no idea. And Jesus somewhat agrees with him, like, yeah, you guys, you're right. You are right. But whoever doesn't have any sin, you throw the first rock. And man, then he goes back down to doodling in the dirt again. It just blows their minds. And then the text says that, which is interesting, from oldest to youngest, they started dropping the rocks to where it was just Jesus and the lady caught in adultery right there. And then they have this interaction in John 8.10. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? They had the right to do it by the law. Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus was the only one who could throw a rock at her. Jesus was the only one who had the right to because he had no sin whatsoever. But when she's standing there in that moment, when everyone is ready to condemn her, she heard this. You're not condemned. Now go and sin no more. I'm going to argue she believed that. Listen to me. Jesus says the same thing to you. You're not condemned. You're empowered by the Spirit. Go and sin no more. Run back to Jesus when you do. It's the good news of the gospel today. There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe it? Let's pray and go to the Lord's table together. Jesus, the rock has fallen on you at the cross. The rock of condemnation is no longer above us. Thank you. Oh, God, we owe you everything now. Joyfully, passionately, with great zeal. We want to follow in your ways. We want to look more like you. And so, Holy Spirit, would you empower us to do that? Help us to delight in your law and your word. Help us to let it be a natural part of our existence, of our walk. Jesus, and in your name and by your power, any who would condemn us, others, Satan, ourselves, just shut our mouths, shut their mouths, and shut his mouth. May we only hear there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God, may we believe that. Father, I pray also for my friends here who are hearing this, who are very uncertain. They, they believe that they are not Christian. They believe that they are not in Christ. They know that they maybe have done religious things or irreligious things, or spiritual or non-spiritual. Jesus, would you save them today? Would you draw them to yourself as you said you would? Would you take them from death to life? Would you remove the rock of condemnation that stands above them? You took it at the cross. God, would you set us free today? Would you allow it to renew our spirit and our joy? Would you give us great peace? Would you give us great unity to one another? If we have a condemning spirit, would you remove that from us? Help us to walk in the freedom of you today by the Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.